Amen. You can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24. And I will remind you again, if this is um, your first time coming to the field or if you weren't here last week, that this is part two of the um, sermon series entitled God's Eternal Decree. So we're talking about what God planned to do before he created anything. We're going to read Romans chapter nine, verses 19 through 24. This is where we left off last week. The scripture says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And what if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has also called, and not from among Jews only, but also from Gentiles. We're looking at God's eternal decree and this is where we left off last time in our text. We began, just by way of review, at Romans 8.28. And I would ask you just to turn one page back to Romans 8.28. We'll look at verses 8.28 through 30, just to remind you of a couple of the critically important words that you have to understand, or else you will not understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 correctly. The first word is purpose in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. This is the Greek word prothesis, pro being the, the, the critically important prefix there. Pro means before, and the word literally means this a setting forth in advance for a specific purpose. So God's purpose here in the Greek, literally shows you that this plan was made beforehand. The next word that you need to know is the word foreknew, and that's found in verse 29. This is also a Greek word that has the prefix P-R-O before it, pro, meaning beforehand. So it says this, because those whom he foreknew, literally those whom he knew before, he also, here's the third word, predestined. He predestined those whom he foreknew according to his good purpose. This word predestined, again, has the prefix P-R-O, pro, before it, and it means to predetermine, to foreordain, or to mark out beforehand. And this word occurs six times in the New Testament. And what you need to understand about this word is that Scripture never uses this word ever to mean that God predestines people to hell. You must understand that scripture never one time in the entirety of the Bible uses that term to mean that God has predestined people for hell. 
A person is condemned because he or she refuses to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I read Jeremiah chapter 18, specifically verse 12, where their response was, yeah, God, thanks. We're going to do what we want. That's why people are sent to hell by God, not because God predestined them to hell. So stated in another way, then, this word predestined simply applies only to saved people. So what Paul is doing here in Romans 8, 28 through 30 is beginning a new section. And that section flows all the way through chapter 11 of the book of Romans. Basically, what he is saying is this, that the foreordained purpose of God in creation is to glorify his holy name by spreading the image of Jesus Christ throughout the entirety of the earth. Please look back at verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, here's the purpose, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And by saying that word, Paul shifts from before time was ever created to where we sit now in time. What happened and what was predestined by God's Prothesis has a direct effect to what happens right now, even now, as you sit in that chair. Even now, God's plan is at work, his plan to spread his holy name throughout the entirety of the earth. Now, how does this concern those whom he's called? The elect? Well, this is how he spreads his holy name throughout the earth is by conforming those chosen from before the foundation of the world to be conformed into the image of his son. This is what the text teaches. It's incredible that Christ is that wonderful, that God determined that he was going to people the universe with an incredibly vast number of replicas of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, the called, the chosen, not by works, not because we conjured up faith in and of ourselves, but because of his mercy. We're the raw material of that plan. So if you'll look with me then in verses 31 through 39, continuing on in our review, Paul simply reasons from that reality. Look at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? What things? God's eternal decree. That's what he's talking about. What then shall we say to God's eternal decree? <laughs> and I'll skip down to verses 38, 39. For I am convinced that there is absolutely nothing in all creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So Paul, after preaching predestination, reasons from that reality as a way to have absolute assurance of your salvation. It's meant to assure you of your salvation, and it's meant to be an absolute terror to those who are not in Christ at this moment. Now, Paul has to deal with a major elephant in the room question. And I said this last week, we're still reviewing. That's great, Paul, I believe you, I do. But you need to tell me what happened with Israel, because Israel, was the chosen people of God, were they not? And so Paul deals with that in Romans chapter nine. But before we approach that, I want to remind you again of how we approach this type of text, because we are walking on holy ground. 
First, we have to get rid of any preconceived prejudices or any sort of notion that we have or any bias that we have that stems from any sort of belief that we have that does not line up with the Bible. We also cannot approach this text philosophically. Your mind and my mind are utterly inadequate to comprehend the thoughts of God in their entirety. God is knowable, but he is not fully comprehensible. This should not surprise you. How many things in the natural world do you not understand? Black holes in space, there's one. (laughs) How a child grows in the womb, there's another. How a seed becomes a fully grown tree, there's another. You can't explain that. We try in our scientific way. Oh, well, the sun comes down and it gives us all. Yeah, that's great. Where does that, how does that work? So it should be absolutely no surprise to us that we cannot comprehend the infinite mind of God. And like I said last time, we have to only approach this text humbly, humbly. We can only look for our answers to these questions from the scriptures. We cannot philosophize our way to the answer. Again, I'll remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter one. In fact, let's turn there since it's so close to the book of Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter one, just verse 19 for the sake of time, but I would commend this section Roman, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 to you. But the 19th verse, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That is our text today. So Paul answers the question, what happened to Israel? Weren't they the chosen ones, God? How, Paul, how can you say, how can you say that I'm, I should be so assured of my faith? Wasn't Israel the chosen? Look at chapter nine, verse six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There's his answer. You see, the nation were the recipients of the divine favor, but the entire nation was never promised salvation. Study your Old Testament. Go look at the people of Israel, the chosen ones. Just remind, I'll remind you of the verse that I read from Jeremiah 18. It's hopeless for we will do what we want, God. Thanks, but no thanks. In chapter 9, verse 11 here, I'll have you look at that. Paul, after speaking of the promise of God and making the, the, the categorical distinction between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise, then says in verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose, the prothesis, same word as Romans 8, 28, the prothesis of God according to election would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. This promise by God concerns the election of God. 
The elect are those whom God has chosen, according to Paul's own words, from before the foundation of the world. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, as Bo had already recommended that you read, and I'm not going to read the entirety, but let us just look at verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before times eternal, literally in the Greek, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his own will. You know, Jesus himself speaks of these elect ones many, many times. In fact, John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, as well as verse 44 and verse 64 through 65, give us some specific insight into how Jesus himself speaks of, of the elect ones. Go ahead and listen along as I read. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe, and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. Again, in John chapter 10, verse 26 through 30, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. And in John chapter 17, verse six of the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Beloved, if you are in Christ, you must understand that you are a gift from the father to the son. All that the Father gives me will come to me. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. The elect ones are gifts given from the Father to the Son for the express purpose of believing in the Son. And you might say, well, what about all the times where Jesus says, all, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Let's look at that text. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for this way was pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The one who comes are the ones who believe. Those whom Jesus is speaking to are the ones who have been chosen. You guys will remember the verse. For many are called, but few are. Many are called, but few are chosen. This tells us about the general gospel call. The name of Jesus Christ has been declared all throughout the world. The gospel has gone to the very ends of the earth. How do we know that? You're sitting in this room. We are not even close to Jerusalem. We're on the other side of the world. The gospel call has gone out. The general gospel call is literally heard and rejected by myriads of people every single day. But what Jesus is referring to when he says few are chosen is the effectual gospel call. And this is heard and believed only by the elect. Now, Romans chapter nine, verse 14. Let's take a look back at our text. He says, what then shall we say? Is, is God not just? Is there any unrighteousness with God? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, meaning his mercy and compassion, does not depend on the one who wills, that is to think, or the one who runs, that is to exert a tremendous amount of effort, but his mercy and his compassion depends on him dispensing it according to his own good pleasure. In other words, Paul is appealing to, he's arguing from God's own free and sovereign will to do what he wants with what is his own. Look at verse 18. After using Pharaoh as an example, which we will definitely be talking about more today. He says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now, still by way of review, how does God harden? He does it three, particularly three primary ways. Passively, God hardens by removing his restraining influence on evil. We talked about that last week. Secondarily, under the same heading of passively, he patiently endures mankind's continual pursuit of evil by allowing them to continue rejecting the truth. In other words, he allows men to do what they want, just like we saw in Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 12. This is how he passively hardens people. And the other way is actively. It is through judicial punishment. He personally will deliver sinners over to their sin, we saw this in Romans chapter one. Look over at Romans chapter one. <clears throat> Verses 26, 24, 26, and 28. The thrice repeated phrase, 
Starting in verse 24, therefore, because they professed to be wise and became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an idol, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Go down to verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Go down to verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And looking back at chapter 9, verse 17, the example of Pharaoh we talked about last week, and it's very important that you understand this. We looked at the Exodus account from which Paul quotes this very verse. It's found in Exodus chapter 9, verses 13 through 17. And in particular, in that section, the 15th verse, he says to Pharaoh, for if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, this is the verse that Paul is quoting, I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name throughout all of the earth. And still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. When it says, for this very purpose, I raised you up, that does not mean that God created Pharaoh for this particular reason. What that word literally means, and it has the sense of, is Pharaoh, I have not overthrown you yet. I have allowed you to continue on in your rejection of me, in your exaltation of yourself against me, so that I may reveal my wrath and my power over you. And you guys know the Exodus account. It's the story of God's delivering of his people. So all of this is review, and we have to understand that God never predestines anybody for hell. He does not predestine anybody for hell. And this takes us to our verse today in verse 19 and the second part of our outline, the hostile rejection of God's sovereignty. Why does God find fault with the unwilling since his will is absolute? This is basically what the question in verse 19 is saying. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You're telling me that he's got this great and glorious plan from before the foundation of the world, and he's God. Why am I on the hook for my sin? I mean, if God predestines everything, what's the problem? What's the answer? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? You see, the, the question in verse 19 does not stem from a proper understanding of who mankind really is. You see, we, we generally think we're pretty good. Yep, I'm pretty good. I'm not as bad as that guy. Yeah, you get laughing because you know it's true. That's how we think. We are full of ourselves. And it's disgusting in the eyes of God. Pride is constantly creeping in, in my own prayer life, even when I'm standing up here. It's constant with all of us. And you know what God hates? He hates pride. Who are you, oh man, who answers back to God? So we need to get this doctrine of original sin straight before we proceed any further. Because we think of ourselves as good, and the Bible teaches the exact opposite. 
When sin entered into mankind's heart, the entire human race was rendered guilty before God and polluted by the presence and the power of sin. So original sin has two primary components then, original guilt and original pollution. Original pollution is manifested in two ways, total depravity and total inability. Total depravity, what does that mean? I'm sure you guys have heard that term before. Let me put it in the negative first. It does not mean that people are as bad as they possibly could be. What it does mean is that man's nature is inherently corrupt. That means everything that we do is focused on one objective, satisfy myself. That's what total depravity means. It means that as far as this vertical relationship is concerned, there is nothing that is pleasing in God's sight. Look at Isaiah 64, verse 6, or just listen along. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Do you want to boast of your righteous deeds before a holy God? You don't. You don't. Total depravity refers to mankind's nature. You know, an elephant can't be a dog. A dog can't be a mouse. A mouse can't be a man. Why? Because their nature is as such. Mankind cannot be good. Why? Because his nature is absolutely wicked and evil. So original sin, first and foremost, when we're talking about it, has to do with total depravity. Now, there's plenty of systems out there, theological systems, that would say the opposite. But again, what does the Bible say? If you have any misunderstanding about it, I would encourage you to go back and read Romans chapter three. The depraved state of man is revealed by this very fact that all that mankind in his depravity desires, seeks, and wants is something that will satisfy himself. And total inability then refers to mankind's actions. Total inability then refers to mankind's will. He is totally unable to do anything that is pleasing in God's sight. Now again, that doesn't mean that we're all as bad as we possibly could be on a human level. But even when a billionaire gives tons of money away to a charitable organization, and we go, oh, that's good, great, that's wonderful. It's not deemed as holy and good in God's sight. Why? His motivation is completely wrong. He is not doing that unto the glory of God. And that's how God judges our actions. We judge by what we see, but God judges by the heart. Any outward conformity to God's holy law, when it is done by someone who is unregenerate, when it is done by someone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for their righteousness, cannot be pleasing in God's sight because of that very fact. The motivation is completely wrong in God's sight. Why is it wrong? Because man hates God. We hate God. This is what we talked about last time. Romans 8, 7, speaking of total inability, says this, because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. 
Why is it not able to do so? Is God keeping us back? Is, are we just begging God to let us worship him? And is he going, no, I haven't chosen you? No. We're not begging God at all to worship him. We are not begging God, even in the minute, slightest detail of our hearts, we are not desiring God at all. We're not even able to do so. More, to, more on that to come. Furthermore, on Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, it says this, Therefore, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. What we take away from the doctrine of original sin when we rightly understand it is that mankind cannot love God because he will not love God. Mankind cannot love God because he wills not to love God because of the heart, because his nature is utterly wicked. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Turn there in your Bibles. Verses 1 through 3 paint the picture absolutely for us. Speaking to believers, Paul refers to their life before Christ, starting in verse 1, and you were dead in your, trust, your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here it is. And were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Church, that was everyone in this room before Christ. That's what you have to take away from this portion of today's sermon. So now we have to go back to Romans chapter nine. We have to understand some things. We have to understand primarily the two components that are providing the tension right now, because the relationship between what's called God's sovereignty and salvation and mankind's responsibility to repent is a critical one. Mankind was made in the image of God with the ability to make decisions freely. When Adam and Eve were walking in the Garden of Eden before they sinned, they had the decision to choose to obey God or to choose to disobey God. Their will, in other words, was not in bondage to sin. And when they chose to sin, that decision thrust all of humanity into bondage to sin. Where now, we, before Christ, have the ability to make choices. Some people confuse free will with the ability to make decisions. But our will is not free in the ultimate sense. Why? Because of everything I've just told you. You and I could not choose to obey God unless we were given a new heart. 
Therefore, our free will was extremely limited. This is what the Bible teaches. And you know, just because of the fact that we only will choose to satisfy ourselves if we're not in Christ does not mean we're victims of that choice. Why? Because you do it. You know, I used to be an alcoholic. I didn't get the pity from people because I chose to get blacked out drunk every night. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a victim of that choice. It was my choice. It's the same thing with any other sin. You're not a victim of your own choices. We voluntarily made that decision while we were, as the Bible says, in the loins of Adam. And we voluntarily make those choices every single day when we choose to sin. God is not coercing you to sin. This is the concept that I want you to understand in your mind and term in your mind as voluntary bondage. We are voluntarily in bondage to sin. God is not placing us and holding people who want to worship him down. No. In fact, he's doing quite the opposite. All day long, I've held my hands out to an obstinate, rebellious people, he says in Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3. All day long, you consistently reject me to my face. Now, let's move to the second or third point in our text today, the strong rebuke of God's righteousness. Verses 20 and 21. On the contrary, who are you, O man, totally depraved and utterly unable, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? And we'll stop there. You see, what you need to understand is that the Bible teaches that God made man upright, like I've already said. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 says this, see this alone I have found, says Solomon, that God made man upright, but they have sought after many schemes. In other words, God made men and women true and upright, but we made a mess of things. We screwed it up. And what we have to also understand about this plan of God is that his plan comprehends and determines all things and all events of every kind that ever come to pass, including the free and voluntary actions of free and voluntary agents, people. What seems completely free and coincidental is actually a part of God's plan. Look at Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 and verse 33. It's up on the screen for you. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every judgment is from Yahweh. The lot, it's like drawing straws, an ancient Jewish practice designed so that chance, quote unquote, will make the choice for us. Do you know chance is an unbiblical concept? If you use it in any form other than its mathematical meaning, chance is not a creative force. It is not a created thing. It's a term used to describe a mathematical possibility. And yet so many people just chalk it up to chance. That's how we all got here. Evolution, man. Duh. It's not how we got here. Because God has a plan. 
So what seems completely free and coincidental is part of God's decree. The next point that we have to understand about God's plan and about this section here that we're looking at is that plan also includes the sinful actions of mankind, which God uses for his own purposes. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. Many of you know this verse. Joseph, speaking to his brothers, says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The same concept is shown to us in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. God's plan executed by wicked men for an ultimately good purpose. And was that not a good purpose, church? Yeah. It's the only reason we have any hope. And yet it was executed by the wicked, free, voluntary decisions by men who hated God. God's sovereign, providential control includes man's continual, voluntary bondage to sin. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18. We're going to spend some time there. The context of this passage, while you're, while you're turning to it, God is speaking against Judah's attempt to blame their forefathers for the sin that God was about to judge them for. Look at verse 1 in chapter 18. This was a proverbial saying that all of the Jewish people who came back from exile would say. It's also found in Jeremiah 31, verses 28 through 29. And here's the proverb. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. This was a proverb that was common amongst their day and time. And basically what it means is that our fathers enjoyed tremendous prosperity. If you, if you study the Old Testament history, you'll see this. Israel was extremely prosperous, particularly because of Solomon. And the fathers were utterly wicked with that prosperity, used all of that increase to satisfy self, <laughs> thought nothing of God. And the proverb then says, the children's teeth are being set on edge. This was a judicial punishment practice where the teeth would be placed on an edge and be stepped, their head would be stepped on. In other words, we are being punished for their sin. God, you're unjust. That's what the context of this chapter is. So let's look at verse four, because now what we're going to see here is even though God is sovereign in salvation, he requires of individuals their own repentance for their own sin. This is the second component under God's eternal decree known as individual responsibility. Verse 4 of chapter 18, behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine, and the soul who sins will die. Look at verse 20. The soul who sins will die. The son will not bear the iniquity of the father, nor will the father bear the iniquity of the son. 
The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. Here's the principle. God will not judge people for the sins of other people. He will judge each individual for their own sin. Therefore, each individual alone is required to repent for their own sin. What is God's basis for making this argument? Look at verse 4 again. What does that say? All souls are mine. If you remember what we talked about last time in Romans 9, Paul's two components to his argument. God has absolute free sovereign will, and he owns all things. This is where the apostle Paul gets his argument from. This and Jeremiah 18, which we read earlier today. So this presents the issues that we're looking at, namely those two components, God's sovereignty and salvation and mankind's own responsibility to repent. Now I'll have you look at verse 23 because God does not predestine people for hell. Look at his heart here in verse 23. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Is it not that he should turn from his ways and live? Look at verse 25. Yet you will say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? And he goes on to reiterate the same thing that he's been reiterating throughout this entire chapter. If you repent, I will relent of my judgment. If you don't repent, I will not relent of my judgment. The same thing he said in Jeremiah chapter 18. All day long, God holds out his hands. All day long, the message is exactly the same. Repent, for the judgment of God is coming. And the only way out is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 25 and 29. We read verse 25, go down to 29. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? This is God arguing with his people, pleading that they would repent. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He doesn't double predestine people. He doesn't say, well, I've chosen you for hell because that's what I want to do. And I've chosen you for hell because that's what, that is not biblical. The reason you go to hell, the reason why people are sent to hell is because they chose it. Look at verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord Yahweh. Therefore, turn back and live. Look at verse 31. Cast away from yourselves all your transgressions, which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel, And there we see the problem. Our heart is utterly depraved. We need a new one. Go to to Ezekiel 36. Go to Ezekiel 36. Verses 22 through 28. Remember, I said God's plan from before the foundation of the world was to glorify his holy name by spreading the image of Christ throughout the entirety of the earth through the elect. 
Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned amongst the nations to which you have come. And I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. That's the exact same thing he said to Pharaoh. Verse 24, and I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. He's going on to talk about the future restoration of Israel. Oh, I wish we had time to talk about that. Verse 26 through 28. Here it is, the new covenant promise. This is the answer to what we need. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments and you will inhabit the land that I gave to your fathers. And so you will be my people and I will be your God. We need a new heart church. Jeremiah 18 encapsulates the teaching of Jeremiah 18. So the conclusions that we draw as we turn back to Romans chapter nine the conclusions that we draw from this section of, of our Holy Bible, number one is this. It is absolutely unbiblical to say that God predestines people to hell. God never does that. When someone says that, they're simply trying to blame God for their own sin. It's exactly what Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter nine. Well, it must be God's fault. I mean, I'm pretty good and he's absolutely in control. So why am I even on the hook for it? And this is exactly what Adam did in the garden, is it not? It's the wife you gave me, God. That's why I sinned. It's her fault. I'm pretty good. I would never have done that. But he did do that. Why? Because he wanted to do that. And this is why Paul rebukes strongly the objection in verse 19. Because mankind is responsible for their decisions, which they voluntarily make. The next point, the next thing that we draw from what we've just read is that God never creates anyone from hell or for hell, nor does he force anyone to sin. James chapter one, verses 13 through 15 tell us this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. God never creates anyone for hell, nor does he force anybody to sin. Mankind voluntarily gave himself over to the bondage of sin in the garden. And he continues to do that despite all of the common grace that God pours out on the earth. Matthew chapter five, verse 45, for God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the third point you need to take away from Ezekiel 18, that God is gracious in a very general way to people who absolutely hate him. The next point that you have to understand 
is that mankind does not repent because he loves darkness rather than light. John chapter 3, verse 19, after the famous John 3, 16. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds or evil. And the final point that we draw from this is that mankind will still prefer his sin even when God is pouring out his wrath. He won't somehow just change all of a sudden. Well, how do we know this? Well, turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. Turn to Revelation chapter 16. Verses five through 11. This is the final execution of God's just wrath on the earth in the end. Starting at verse five. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who is and who was, O holy one, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, yes, O Lord God, the almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the authority over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent. Mankind even when he gets to hell, does not all of a sudden desire repentance. Why? Because his heart is totally depraved. Even when the sky is ripped open and God himself in the final half of the great tribulation is pouring out judgment on the earth so as to be unmistakably clear that God exists, does not repent. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. Mankind does not want God, period. Verse 21, the Apostle Paul appeals to God's ownership rights. And he's drawing his illustration from Jeremiah chapter 18, as we read earlier. Does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, the Lord can do what he wants with his own. And that's good news, church. Because what I've been describing to you thus far describes every single one of us. Every human that's ever walked the earth was and is, some of them, still that. We were totally depraved. We were utterly unable to do anything pleasing in God's sight. That's what the Bible teaches. And if God wasn't able to do what he wanted with what is his own, nobody would be saved. Let me tell you something. You don't want fairness with God. You want mercy. This moves us into the, one of the final points of our outline today. The stark contrast of God's gracious election in verses 22 through 23. And what if God 
wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction. Let's stop there. This is the passage which many of you asked me about. Well, we've already laid down that it doesn't teach double predestination. God does not predestine people for hell. You see what Paul's saying in verses 21 and following, rather, sorry, verse 20 and 21 and then following is that the whole lump of clay that is mankind became corrupt in the fall. Everything, the, the, the lump of clay that God scooped out of the earth and breathed his life into in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, that lump of clay corrupted. Now, God because of the fact that he's God, has the right to refashion that clay as he desires. Is that not what Jeremiah chapter 18 said? Now, what you have to understand about these two verses is there's something very easy to miss here. Look at verse 22 and just listen to me. What if God, okay, so Paul's just putting this forward. What if, does God not have the right to make his power and his wrath known. That's basically what Paul's saying. What if God, with much patience, endured vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? Who's doing the enduring here? Who is it? It's God. Then it says, those vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction. Who's preparing them for destruction? That's the issue we have to find out because it's not God according to the Greek text or the English text. God did not prepare them for destruction. Now, here's a great verse that will help you understand what Paul is saying here, essentially, in Matthew 17, 17. This is Jesus saying to the unbelieving crowds, oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I put up with you? God enduring the unbelief of sinful, totally depraved mankind. And notice how he endures with much patience. That preparation was not done by God. All God's doing here is enduring. That preparation was done in the fall. And what the Greek text also puts forward and the English text is that past event prepared them for destruction, and there's a continually ongoing numerous amount of events that further prepare them for destruction. You know what those events are? The hardening process, which we've already talked about. You see, when, when human beings are born, they're born in sin. Now, if infants die or people die who have no mental capacity in the mystery of God, God's mercy and grace can be poured out on them because he pours it out on whom he feels like pouring it out, like Paul's already described to us. So nothing changes about our doctrine of salvation. God is the one who dispenses mercy, not anything you do, not anything I do. But make no mistake about it. We are born in sin. Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. So that very fact happened because of the fall, which immediately prepared all mankind for destruction. And that decision was voluntarily made by Adam and Eve. God did not force them to make that decision. 
So what you need to understand about this having been prepared for destruction, God is not the one who did that. Was it according to God's plan? Yes, but we've already talked about how the free and voluntary actions of human beings are all a part of God's plan. In his sovereign providence, he's able to overrule, override, and use evil for his own good purposes, is he not? This preparation on the vessels of wrath is stubbornly self-inflicted and Satan-inflicted. You know, Satan absolutely hates people. He absolutely hates people. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. And he absolutely hates God. Why? Because he wants to be God. These vessels are prepared for destruction because of the wrath that comes from the fall and because of the wrath that they store up based on their own free decisions. Look at Romans chapter two, verse five. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. What day is that? You remember Revelation chapter 16? We just read it. So when, when you, if you are not in Christ, make a decision to sin, you are storing up more wrath for yourself. But let me tell you something. You are a sinner and that is why you sin. You don't become a sinner once you sin. We need a new heart. We need a new heart. So verse 22, that's the teaching. God has the right to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known as he endures those vessels which were prepared for destruction from the fall and who continually prepare themselves for more destruction. Verse 23, in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. That's the first breath of fresh air we've had all day. And you know what, church? That's you, if you're in Christ. Notice the difference here. Those vessels of mercy, it says this, which he prepared beforehand for glory. That's the difference between those two verses. He prepared those vessels of mercy beforehand for glory. God's foreknowledge of those whom he has chosen to save is based on his own absolutely free will and his own ownership rights to dispense the free gift of mercy to his chosen vessels as he sees fit. He prepared them beforehand. God is doing the action of preparation. And this just reveals the fact that if God didn't decide to show us mercy, then nobody would have been prepared for salvation. If God doesn't dispense his mercy based on his own free will, nobody would receive mercy because we're totally and utterly depraved and incapable. So the conclusion from these verses then is that the vessels of wrath were prepared for that wrath in the fall. And they continually, freely make decisions that store up more and more and more wrath for themselves when Revelation 16 goes down. And this preparation will continue as long as those who are not in Christ continue to serve themselves and serve Satan. 
God has actively endured with much long suffering their voluntary decisions to sin. He endures. Isaiah 65, verses two and three. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face. This was said about God's chosen nation, Israel. How much more so the Gentiles? <laughs> the vessels of mercy are the only way, are, are only that way because God has chosen them for glory, both Jew and Gentile. As he says in verse 24, the marvelous plan of God's redemption. He has chosen from both Jew and Gentile. He has called from both Jew and Gentile to fashion some of that clay for vessels of mercy. So we've learned a lot about God's eternal decree, but particularly about how God saves people. Now you may be thinking now as we close, well, man, it sounds like I'm not really in control. You're not, but you're involved. You're not in control, but you are involved. You see, God uses people to accomplish his ends. And even though redemption was all planned from before the foundation of the world, that does not mean, as we've seen, you are not held accountable for your choice to repent. How can you know that you're saved without a doubt if you are saved and you're struggling with this? Because I've heard it said many times. Well, I mean, if, if it's because God chooses, how do I know if I'm chosen or not? Believe me, God wants you to be assured of your salvation. Here's two tests from the first epistle of John. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ as he has been revealed in scripture? And does your life conform to his image? First John chapter five, verse 13 tells us the entire reason why John wrote that, that short epistle. He says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to be assured of your salvation. He wants you to be assured of your salvation. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as he is described in the Bible? And does your life conform to his image? If those two things are true and they stay true throughout the rest of your life, be rest assured, you're saved. So how should this affect your prayer life? Again, I'm not in control, but you're involved. You're involved. First Timothy chapter two, verses one through three. I exhort that petitions and prayers, requests and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our savior. You know, I don't know who the elect are. It's not like you got a big E on your forehead walking around. I'm the elect. I mean, I have no idea. That's God's prerogative. He's the only one who knows. Therefore, we must pray for salvation. We must pray that God would dispense his mercy on unforgiving sinners and give them the promise of the new heart as he did for us. How should the doctrine of election and God's eternal decree affect your evangelism? Oh, much in every way. What if I told you that your outcome could be guaranteed to an extent? Look at the apostle Paul, chapter two of 2 Timothy, verses eight through 10. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead of the seed of David, according to my gospel, which I endure hardship even to chains as a criminal, 
But the word of God has not been chained. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, so that they also may obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know what? You don't have to come up with some crafty presentation of the gospel. You know what you have to do? Go and tell people what they don't want to hear, that they're sinners and that they desperately need the mercy of God because there is a day in which judgment has been fixed. And if they reject you, they reject God and your heart should be broken. You should continue to pray for that person. But then you move on to the next. The Apostle Paul, you know what his strategy was in the book of Acts? He'd run up into the synagogue, proclaim Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. He'd reason from the scriptures and argue from the scriptures about Jesus being the Messiah. And he knew because he understood God's eternal decree that some would hear it and be saved. He knew it. May not happen in every synagogue, but it's going to happen at some point. So the doctrine of election and God's predestination and God's eternal decree guarantees that there will be an outcome at some point. You can have hope in that. Paul had hope in it. And finally, how does the doctrine of God's eternal decree and the doctrine of election give you assurance of salvation? Well, I've already talked about how you can definitely know there are objective signs. But look, let's look at Romans 8, 38 through 39 again. You should, look, Christians are people who know themselves. Christians are people who know their God. He wants you to know them. Look what Paul says. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All day long, he's, he's held his hands out. He, that's because he's love, but he's righteous and holy and just. Turn to Luke chapter 18. And I want to speak to those of you who are in this room who do not know Christ. I don't know who you are, but God knows. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Because I don't want you to put your faith and hope in your declaration of faith in Christ. Remember, we talked about that in part one. Your faith it's not even of yourself. It's a gift of God. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine tell us that. If someone asks you, how do you know you're saved? Well, I made a profession. That's not what first John tells us to look for. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? And does your life conform to his image? What does Jesus say about how to be justified? What can we put our trust in? We can put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Here's the answer. Luke 18, verses nine through 14. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed other people with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, 
that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Sinner, are you willing to confess what this tax collector confessed? Are you willing to beg and plead for the mercy of God? Because that's what saves you, the mercy of God. If you are able to do this, then you will be exalted. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, oh God, I pray, Lord, that you would cut away the flesh of our heart, Lord. God, I pray for your holy name to be glorified in your church. God, you are executing your plan. You will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. You will set aside. It is by grace that we are saved. It is by your mercy that the free gift of eternal life comes to all who you have chosen. And God, I pray, Lord, that although we don't know who the chosen are, God, I pray, Lord, that everyone in this room would humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. For you say to our arrogant responses, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Oh, God, have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on our souls, Lord. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for the the Lamb of God who was sacrificed and slain in our place, Lord, who believe. God, we thank you, Lord, for his righteousness, for it is ours. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are our redemption. You are our sanctification. You are our wisdom. You are our righteousness. We plead nothing but the blood of the lamb before the holy throne of God. God, I pray that you would convict sinners of sin so that they may receive life. For Jesus' sake, amen.